Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Cockgrave. Mark is a passionate and experienced entrepreneur. He's won and lost. He's had five companies. He's a passionate advocate for doing good business the right way. We're going to be exploring how do I build a business in the right kind with the right kind of culture. We're going to explore what he means by culture. We're going to dig into how do you hire the right kind of people because that feeds into the cult, the very culture that you're creating and the kind of people that you would attract. Why is the business model and the strategy so important to decide on early and to get right for the phase that you're in, in the stage of the business that you're at? What's wrong with having such a a strong focus on revenue? And what does that distract people from? So we're going to look at a number of uh, important topics. So first of all, Mark, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history, please, so that people understand where you're coming from? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. So from a business perspective, I have pretty much all my life been an entrepreneur. You mentioned I'd started a number of companies. I've actually been founder or co-founder of five different companies. And one of those went bust. A couple of those have done okay. We've got one in process at the moment. And one did extremely well, was a bedroom startup. And 10, 12 years later, we sold, you know, was it was an international company with a couple hundred people all around the world. And we sold to a Silicon Valley company. So I've seen pretty much all of the spectrum of entrepreneurial startup activity, which makes me really old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you crammed a lot into a very short life. (laughs) You said in the preamble that you're a professional sportsman to begin with. I'm really curious how the discipline and the focus on process really built or uh, framed how you behave in business. So... Okay, so just a, a little bit of background to to kind of frame this. My degree, postgrad, etc., was in sports science. So I was trained as a scientist, but as an exercise physiologist. So it's all around the, the science of sport. But I was also a sports person in my own right and competed as a professional skier and at a high level in sailing events and, and various other things. And I've come from a sporting family in my other half and all my kids are sporting as well. So I'm very attuned to how you get the best out of yourself in a sporting sense. And one of the things that I think that teaches you when it comes to pretty much any form of life, but particularly in business, is the importance of understanding what the process is and not focusing on the results. So let's give you an example. You're going, you you do very extremely well and you qualify for the Olympics. For example, if your goal is a gold medal, or even a medal of any kind, the important thing is not to focus on that. It's to focus on how the sequence of events, the things that you need to do, the process, the training, the recovery, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that if everything goes according to plan and you're lucky and, 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 the result might be the medal. Now, I would relate that, and and that's true across any sport, pretty much. You must focus on the process. You don't focus on the result. If you do the process well, the result takes care of itself. And what I see in far too many businesses, I think, is that there is a focus on the equivalent, which is the result, which is revenue, particularly for those companies who are publicly quoted, because it's this quarterly treadmill that you've got to be on. And if you know, it's all about getting that, that number at the end, at least in their view, it is. My view is, If you don't focus on the process, 
then you'll end up with very, very lumpy results. You'll end up with not, no ability to scale, et cetera, et cetera. So it, to me, it's all about figuring out how the business works. Take the, you know, the, the, the equivalent of the training and all those things for a sports person. How's the business work? Let's get really good at operating our business. Are we doing it the right way? Are we, are we trained? Are we skilled? Are we doing those things correctly? And the results, which in the business case will be revenue, will then take care of themselves. And that, to me, is the really critical learning, I guess. So there, there's a lot to unpack there because the the uh, I think it was Zig Ziglar said that um, your business is perfectly designed today to deliver precisely the results that you're getting. <laughs> and if you haven't designed your business, then th- that in itself is a form of design. The consequences are unintended. And you know the input is all you can control. You can't control the outcome. So if you're focused on quarterly reporting and hitting that revenue number and you know, getting enough in the pipeline, new logos and so on, then the emphasis distracts you from where your attention should be, which is on creating an environment where people want to come to work to do their best work and give massive discretionary effort. And wow, the, the experience for the customer, whether they're external or internal, is a wow experience, so they come back. But the economics of quarterly reporting actually runs counter to that because it drives efficiency at the expense of effectiveness, which costs you a fortune. Yeah, there's an awful lot in there. (laughs) I'm not quite sure where I want to go first. (laughs) We've got about 45 minutes, all yours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so... Let, let's just get into. There's a couple of things that are, that are, that you touched on there that are really, really dear to my heart. Um, one of them was this idea of. I think you alluded to this idea of business model and getting the process right. Let's go there first. That's where I started, and then I think we move on to other things. But so take the analogy that I just used around this idea of focusing on the sporting process to and not worry about the result takes care of itself. Bring it into the business world, as you just mentioned. One of the critical things there is. Again, I completely agree to your point. If you don't design how your business works, you are designing it just by default. You're just designing how it works just by not designing it, right? And you may be lucky, but the reality is most small businesses aren't, I think. And one of the things that I think is really important is the business model of a business has to be aligned with both the product that you're selling or service you're selling and the customers that are going to be buying that product. And I would argue, and I've seen loads of times where if the the product may be fantastic, but if the business model doesn't align to both of those two constituents, you won't succeed. And let me just be very specific by what I mean by the business model. I mean, think of the business model, it's an engine, it's a mechanism. What's the mechanism by which your, your company goes from we don't have a product to we are selling products to customers. What is the mechanism that makes that happen? That is a simple way of thinking about about the business model. And it's just critical that you get that right and, and matches those two constituents. Otherwise, it just doesn't work at all. And I think a lot of businesses, a lot of small businesses focus far, completely the wrong way around of saying, I think most small businesses, that uh, a lot of small businesses don't focus on that enough. They don't think through all the different parts of that mechanism. Go back to the sporting analogy. That's the process by which you're going to create your revenue. 
And you've got to A, know what it is, make sure it's aligned, and then B, focus on improving that process. My daughter's doing a sports science degree at the moment. And what what I'm very conscious of is the amount of effort that goes into sweating the small detail of the process. So the mechanics, the biomechanics, the diet, sleep, breath, all all these different elements, the mindset, they all play a part. And what, what I'm convinced of is there is a corporate myopia or blinker that prevents people from looking beyond their little fiefdom or area of disaster and to see a bigger picture. Because I'm seeing time and time again, organizations throwing a lot of money at technology, at headcount, without ever contemplating what's causing our real problem and what's the outcome, the better future we really want. Uh, and why, why are we still chasing these you know, revenue numbers rather than actually the stuff that will create a lasting, sustainable, profitable business? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, th- yeah, completely. And, and yeah, again, there's, there's just so much to, to, to unpack here. And I think that I, I pre- previous company that we had was a software company we founded in a, in a, it was a bedroom startup with two people and we grew it into a couple of hundred people all across the globe with offices all across the globe and company we, we sold out to a Silicon Valley based company. And it was shocking to me how that company had developed by their own choice, right? When you, when you, when you float on the market, these are a NASDAQ quoted company. When you float, you start out with a set of expectations for your investors. And the problem is if those expectations are the wrong ones, you're now on a treadmill. You're now on a roller coaster you can't get off. And these guys had got themselves on this roller coaster where it was all about quarterly numbers. We had to hit our quarterly numbers. They had to be higher and higher and higher every time. And it drove all the wrong behaviors, in my opinion. And it was a disaster. It was a basket case, this company was. Billion dollars in revenue in a basket case. And it was exactly to your point. Nobody actually went back to basics and said, hang on, why do we not build the business? Why are we operating the business in the way that we ought to be operating and let the numbers sort out themselves? But it's a very hard treadmill to get off if you put yourself on it in the first place. So as a founder who built this baby from from scratch, what was that like? To culture shock. <laughs> I laugh because it was literally laughable. I I, I could not believe. Well, first, first thing, you kind of assume this is a billion dollar corporation, right? They paid a whole load of money for our company, which was this company based in the south coast of the UK. You kind of assume they had a reason. And I dug around for a while after we'd been acquired and couldn't find a reason. And I got to the I got to the conclusion that they were basically being driven by the whim of the opinions of outside analysts rather than actually having a, a, a real reason to acquire us. And it, it, they had no strategy for acquiring us. It, they bought us because they thought it was a good, they didn't really know why. And it was astonishing to me. It, it's really interesting. I, I was watching a video with Jay McBain from Forrester last week. And he was saying that Accenture is acquiring a new company every seven and a half hours. <laughs> okay. Now, when you've got a market where there is that kind of appetite for acquisition and you've, the, the market is awash with money looking for a place to find, you know, find a home, I suspect there's short-term money to be made, 
But at what price? <laughs> well, at the price in, in, in our particular case of basically destroying what was a very, very healthy business. You know, I mean, we made all, we, we, they paid us a ton of money for it. Why do I care? But it's such a shame because they took a business that was a very, very good growing business. And I, I, as you were talking, I was wondering whether they actually thought of it more as a VC type approach. You know what? We'll buy these 10 companies. One of them will do okay. If the others die, that's fine. Maybe that's the approach they took to it. I don't know. But if their approach was actually considered, then they don't really know how to spell the word considered. <laughs> you know? so if you had your time again, I normally leave this question till the end. Um, <laughs> but if you had your time again, and you could advise the idiot Mark at the point where he was deciding on who to sell to. What would you whisper in his ear if you had uh, a, a rerun? Okay, a couple of caveats to that. First of all, it wasn't me on my own. It was four of us. Okay. So, and, and it was an equal management decision made by four of us. So let's be clear about that. Second thing, I don't do regrets because I think, you know, loads of people go, well, oh, if I, if I had that situation again, I'd do it differently. No, you wouldn't, I say, because you would have had exactly the same situation. That were, so you had exactly the same information. You would have made the same decision. Okay. So let's put those things aside. Okay. That's if fair. we're in a different situation. Honestly, you were to apply the lesson. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, probably... I just would. I still think we we should have sold the business, right? But that was because there's a point at which you've been running it for a period of time. We've been running this thing for 14 years, and they were going to put a significant amount of money in our pockets. And there's a point at which you go, you know what, that'll do. However, if you look at it from the business perspective, there was no question that it was a bad thing for them to acquire because they had no idea what they were doing. And, 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 and interestingly, didn't take the time to find out. They were totally interested in how much revenue and growth we could add to their bottom line. They didn't care about anything else. Did you have clients that they hoped to sell to? <laughs> Presumably. But given the fact that as far as I could see, and i be clear, I basically ran the business unit after we were acquired. And I reported directly to the CIO who reported to the CEO. So I could pick up the phone to the CEO if I wanted to any day. I spoke to him and specifically tried to dig into the question as to why they'd bought us. And it was quite clear they had no idea. So you would assume <laughs> we had customers that they wanted to sell to. But <laughs> maybe a tax write-off, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but it was astonishing. Either that or better biscuits. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe they just wanted some English accents around the place. Who knows? But yeah, it, it really was an awakening to me in how badly some of these on the face of it, successful companies are run. Let's define what you mean by culture to begin with, because um, let, let, let's start there. Yeah, okay. So let, let's, I guess, I guess kind of from a time perspective, let's wind the clock back. One of the things that um, I think is absolutely critical in a business is that you build the right kind of culture. So to your question specifically, culture for me is not, a warm, fuzzy, nice, isn't everybody lovely feeling is way more concrete than that. Culture is the result of all of the different decisions that are made in a business that all compound together to produce how the business acts, right? That to me is culture. Now, some of those decisions are HR-related ones. Some of them are customer-related ones. Some of them are process-related, whatever, whatever they are. So 
it to me it's it, it's actually quite specific. And and given that obviously in any kind of business, once you get to any kind of size at all, the number of decisions that happen on a daily basis, there are hundreds of them, right? And the overall effect of that is the culture of the business. Now, the, the reason I think that's important is because you as the founders of a business create that culture by the decisions that you make, right? If you put a customer ahead of an employee, for an exa- for example, and I'm saying that for a very specific reason, which yeah. I'll touch on, but for example, if you put a customer ahead of an employee in a particular situation, other people will see that decision and will it, you will unconsciously start to create a set of behavior that they almost subconsciously will start to follow. Yeah. Right. And that happens everywhere. And so you will start, and what will happen is that that, that decision that you made, and then another one, and then another one, and another one, and you're the leader, right? If you're the it has founder, a flywheel effect. Yeah, exactly. And so you'll end up getting, you know, these kind of behaviors that, that, that permeate themselves across a business that end up as being your culture, right? If you if you act in a very if 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 somebody sees you condoning very political behavior within a business, right? Mm-hmm. Almost maybe not condoning it in 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 in, in an action or tolerating it or, or tolerating it. That's 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 a nice way of putting it. Yeah, they will probably subconsciously, but little by little, that will start to be accepted behavior in your company, and it's these sets of, of, of decisions that you make and everybody else makes that are so important that creates this culture. And if you want to create a business that has a specific way of dealing with customers, employees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you've got to make sure that the decisions that you are seen to make or abdicate making, to your point, are actually driving people to, to, to behave in the, in, the, in, the correct, in the way that you want them to. And there was somebody that just just there was somebody said something to me a long while ago, which has become one of the platitudes that I use a lot because I think it's brilliant. And that's the environment affects the person way more than the person can affect the environment, right? Yeah. Which means that the first few people that you hire in your startup are absolutely critical because a they will make the right kind of decisions that you would make. And B, those four, five, six people become the environment that everybody else is hired into. Yeah. Right? Well, th- this speaks to the critical importance of uh, the law, which is you never, ever, ever compromise on recruitment. Can I, can I expand on that? Because I completely oh, yeah. agree with you. The question is on what dimension? Because you could say to one person, okay, the most important thing for our recruitment is a skill set, okay? Somebody else might say, it's, it's, I don't know, whatever else it might be. I would completely agree with you. To me, however, the single most important, let me define it a slightly different way. In our, in our software business, we had an expression which was PLU, which stood for people like us, right? Now, that didn't, and what we did is we hired PLUs. And that didn't mean they were the same as us in terms of skin color or background or gender or how we thought or skill set. It was people like us in terms of personality, right? So if we had the choice of- Is two, it personality or values? 
I would say that values are part of personality. So yeah, both. Okay. Right. Personality encompasses a whole load of things and there's loads of bits in it, right? Right. Okay. Do you mind defining how you're explaining personality for clarification? So at a basic level, would you be actually, would you enjoy going to sit down in the pub and having a drink with that person, not talking about business at all? Would you, would that be a pleasure, pleasurable experience, right? Because I think that actually, although that sounds very flippant, I think if you think of the, if you can think of the people in your life that you do enjoy that sort of relationship with and the people in life that you don't enjoy that sort of relationship with, I think that tells you an awful lot about their values, about how they interact with other people, about their respect for other people, et cetera, et cetera. One of my mentors, Charlie Green, developed the trust equation and he describes that trust equals reliability plus credibility, plus intimacy over self-orientation. And he makes the point that intimacy is the most important operator in that equation. Unless people allow you in, then chances are you're never going to get to the truth. You won't get to their motivation. And without that, you can't have trust. Now, the other piece of that, which is critical Um, reliability and credibility are table stakes. That's just being competent at doing the job. And often tolerating incompetence is another factor because management is afraid to confront it. Um, But low self-orientation is really key um, because if people's orientation is too high... um, Define orientation for me in that sense. I'm not following. Well, You have a service mentality, not a servitude mentality and not an aggressive, persecuting kind of of mentality or entitlement. It's where you understand that you you have a job to do, which is to serve others, because by helping them get their needs met, you get your needs met in turn. Totally agree. And it's about, therefore, it speaks to how do we teach people to make decisions on their own without having to delegate up. And so one one of the ways that I've seen this work is by identifying a set of values and rules against which anyone in the organization is allowed to make a decision without fear of punishment if it goes wrong, so long as they follow uh, that framework. Totally, completely agree. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the things that I would add in. I'm not sure whether the the, um, the self-orientation actually encompasses this as a part of its definition, but that's, I think, a lot of what I see as in what I consider poor behavior in businesses is to do with lack of self-confidence, particularly in, in management. Yeah. Just because you are higher up in a hierarchy doesn't mean that you're better. Doesn't mean that you're cleverer, nicer, doesn't mean anything. It just simply means that you're higher up in the hierarchy, right? For whatever reason. And particularly in a small business, all it means was you started the thing. That's all it means, right? You need to be hiring people that are better than you and you need to accept that's perfectly fine. And therefore, allowing them to make decisions makes a great deal of sense because they know better than you. Okay, you've got the shares in the company, right? But <laughs> I always struggle, frankly. I always struggle with this idea of that, that because I was one of the founders of the company, I kind of had somehow this this ineffable power across the business. It's just wrong because <laughs> there were loads of people in the business who were way better at what they were doing than I would ever be. I wouldn't, 
presume to make decisions for them, but you've got to have the self-confidence to be able to allow them to do that. And, and, and you, you've touched on something so important, which is that more often than not, most people who end up in business ended up as managers accidentally. It was kind of a byproduct of being a good technician. And all of a sudden, they have to be, they're an accidental salesperson. Yeah. Uh, they're an accidental manager, and then they become a VP of everything. Yeah. You, you get promoted to the point of incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> or, or you have to buy your way into a or, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what, what's really interesting is how important it is to create flexibility and resilience at the management layer. But the management layer I see is getting the least amount of attention and love. They don't get coached. They get 3% of the global training budget. There's absolutely no runway into management. And they're the most pivotal people out there. If you, if you can enable your managers to move away from supervisory activity and move away from doing the work that you're paying other people to do yeah. and have them focus on leading, have yeah. them focusing on recruiting and building the bench, have them focusing on design of systems and processes to make people's jobs better and easier and make them more productive without sacrificing effectiveness. And if you can have them spend more time coaching, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you release all that creativity of every person in your organization. Mm. But yeah. next to no attention is paid to that. And it baffles me. Yeah. You've got your handle on the statistics more than I have, but that number doesn't, so that 3% number doesn't surprise me. And I think we it, take the example of our, the software company that I mentioned earlier on was actually basically run by four of us. I think that that would be, and, and there was no hierarchy in that four. There were roles within that four, hmm. and we each had different operational roles in business. But when it came to strategy, there was no one person that made a decision. Now, I think in the vast majority of businesses, that wouldn't work. It worked specifically, I think, for a couple of reasons. One was that we're all good friends, but very respectful of each other. We all had a reasonable level of intellectual horsepower, but we came from a completely different perspective, right? And that was one thing that was very important. But I think there was something else that we implemented, which was something I think that a lot of businesses could do well with. And this, that was this idea that said, and we, we, we realized that we did this as a foursome and then we kind of, we realized it and then we actually implemented it in the business. And there was this idea that said, just because somebody is above you in the hierarchy doesn't mean that you can't question anything they say, right? Now, obviously it comes back to self-confidence. The person that's higher up in the hierarchy has got to be sufficiently self-confident to go, no, you can actually say, if you want to call bullshit on something I say, then go for it. No problem, right? But it, what you did, what, what we did was we implemented a structure which allowed people to do that more easily. And here's how it worked, right? The idea was that if you're in some kind of meeting and people are discussing something, if you throw an idea out onto the table, immediately everybody knows the string, if you like, the metaphorical string that ties you to the idea is cut, which means a couple of things. Because I put the idea out there, I have no requirement to try and support my idea just because it was mine, because it's now just an idea. And the second thing is everybody else around the table looks at the idea and not at the person who threw the idea out there. Now, if you do that and people will really work on that, then 
you have this ability to allow people, allow ideas to bubble up in the organization. If you don't do that, the problem you get is, and I see most of the time, somebody throws an idea out there, it's a crap idea. That person, however, feels the need to defend the idea. And other people start putting the idea down, actually implicitly putting down the person that put the idea out there. And you end up with this toxic situation where no ideas ever bubble to the surface and people don't want to raise their head above the parapet. It's really interesting. There's a fabulous book by Safi Bakal called Moonshots. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, Loonshot. It's all about how companies start out being creative, innovative, entrepreneurial. And there comes a tipping point where it starts to behoove middle and senior management to start knocking down ideas rather than encouraging them. And so you kill and stifle creativity and risk-taking and entrepreneurship. And it's about the challenge of how do you keep uh, on uh, being innovative and creative without and don't lose that part of your culture uh, as you grow because of the uh, distraction of revenue, of MRR, of ARR, of quarterly reporting. And... It's really fascinating when you start to realize just how critically important having diverse set of eyes on the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we were talking about uh, Matthew Syed's book Range earlier on and the importance of having different perspectives. And it's diversity does not mean just skin color or gender or proclivities or whatever. It actually means having a very different perspective on the same issue. and. What's fascinating is when you start to really tap into that, either within your own organization, but also with uh, tapping into the wider network and your strategic alliances and your partnerships, your supply chain, uh, all of a sudden, you can start really creating incredible innovation uh, and drive positive change. And what, what I'm curious about is, at what point does a manager need to realize that they need to be humble enough to let go and ask for help? Because I think that's the part of the, the part of the problem is ego and then being brittle and being afraid of being found out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at what point from day one, I would say. Just a simple, a simple example, I guess, is this idea of understanding in your, if, if you're starting a small business, understanding in your small business what you're good at, but also understanding what you're not good at and being completely honest to say, you know what, we're actually pretty rubbish at this. We need to go and find somebody to help us. Now, it's easier to say for most people when it's a business they're talking about because it doesn't reflect on them, but it comes back to the self-confidence idea. If you are a self-confident person, It means that you're happy to say, no, I don't know the answer to that question. And I have no idea. And that's two two of the most difficult things for human beings to say are when somebody asks them a question is to say, "Um, I don't know. And the other one has just escaped me. So it doesn't matter. But it's the same point, right? If you haven't got the self-confidence to say, I don't know the answer to that question, let's go and find out. If you're always trying to bullshit your way through, you will end up doing the dabbling in stuff that you don't know anything about. And therefore, you don't ask for help because you haven't got the self-confidence to better do so. So I'm really curious what your process was to flush that out in the recruitment process. (laughs) Finding that early is key. Well, fine. The short answer is we didn't have a process per se. What we did, well, okay, we didn't have a process to find out specific things. What we did was 
couple of things that were there. We, first of all, understood very clearly that we were after people rather than skill sets. And so, for example, if we had a choice between person A and person B, who to all intents and purposes were the same, but one had a better skill set than the other, but the other had a better person, personality than the other, we would always hire the person, right? We wouldn't hire the skill set. It's interesting. Joe, Joe Mullings runs the Mullings Group. Um, right. His consultants bill 300 to 500% more than the industry average. And his uh, recruitment process for them is that he hires for people who are high on trust and average on competency because he can teach them competency. You hire for what you cannot train. Totally agree. Having said that, I do actually think you can train some of the personality traits as well. But let me just hold on that for a second. The second thing we did in our interview process, we always went out for a social, uh, certainly at the beginning, when we got bigger, we just didn't have the ability to do so. But we, we, we encouraged you know, the heads of departments and stuff to do the same thing. But certainly in the beginning, we always went out in a social, social situation with the person we were, we, were, we were interviewing. We would have a couple of formal interviews, but we always went out in a social situation with them. And we would make the point to them, listen, be very clear. If you're the wrong person for us and we hire you, we make a mistake, but you make a mistake as well, right? It's not just that we make, we, we, we need to find a good match between the two people, between the, the, you know, the person and the organization. And therefore, it's important for all of us to understand that we're going to get on and we're going to better do these things. So we always had a social engagement, went out for a beer, whatever it was, to just see, do we fit, right? And again, we also tried to make very, make very clear in the recruitment process is this is a two-way street. It's not about you desperately trying to get a job with us. It's about the two groups trying to find out whether we're a good fit or not. So I, I guess there was that thing that, that, that sat there. But let me just come back to what I said, if you would, about this environment affects the person more than the person can affect the environment. I agree that if you some very strong personality traits, you're never going to get rid of. That's just who the person is. But if you bring a person into an environment that does the right things from a cultural perspective in the way I talked about it before, that person will start to act in the same way. They just will. That's just how environments work. Yeah. This is why environment affects the person more than the person affects the environment, which is why you've got to get that environment in right in the first place. I couldn't agree more. What I have seen frequently is that there is a tendency to skew hiring, to hire in our own image only weaker with not terribly proficient managers. And the PLU uh, is too strong there because they hire people they like and uh, they feel wouldn't be a threat. Um, and I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is conflict is a good thing if it's constructive. And it shouldn't be a bed of roses all the time. It's fun. Uh, you know, ha having a robust discussion about strategy or tactics or a situation is good for the business. It's good for the customer. Uh, we should even fight with our customers. I, I'm not a big fan of just turning up and saying, yes, sir, whatever you want. What, one, of my, one of my statements is the customer is always right, except when they're wrong. Often when they're wrong, it's our fault. <laughs> well, um, but more, more often than not, they don't know what they don't know. So what we're up against there is perception issue. And if a customer doesn't understand why we are the best fit for them when we are, mm -hmm. that's on us. 
Yeah. And I, I think far too often we spend our time blaming our people, blaming our customers, blaming our partners and not spending enough time reflecting and looking in the mirror. So that then comes back to the whole concept around humility in leadership and management, because I think that's a must have quality. I, and and you, again, you, you you said a couple of things that, that send me off in loads of different directions. Let me try and think if I can pick up. One of the things you said was, I think I need to be very clear on this PLU thing. That is absolutely not a silver bullet because people will misunderstand it in exactly the way you mentioned. Yeah. This is not about hiring people that look, smell, taste, feel, sound like me. That's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Yeah. Right? And that's you definitely don't want that. It's about finding the right kind of personalities. It's the right kind of finding the right people in terms of how they act. To your point, values and those kind of things. So I think that's really important to, to clarify. The other point you made. You know, people hire people like me only weaker because you don't want to be found out. It comes back to the self-confidence thing. The whole point about hiring somebody is you're hiring somebody to do a to to do to play a role in the business, hopefully that you can't play. You want somebody that does something that you can't do. Otherwise, why don't you just do it? <laughs> now I'm being simplistic because obviously, you know, you need management in some sense, but you know, I I You've got to hire people that are better than you, in my opinion, certainly in a small business. Oh, I think always. If you can't hire people who are better than you, then what the hell are you doing in a leadership role? Yeah, yeah. Your number one job as a manager or a leader is to hire the best people. Agreed. Then get the best out of them. Out of those people. Make sure they have the tools and the resources they need to do their And the environment within which they can And the environment. Yeah. Then help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of stupidity from senior leadership. And then manage inclusively, as you've described, you know, to, to take their opinion. The root word of culture is cult, interestingly enough. Um, and <laughs> yes. you know, cults raise on a pedestal those who epitomize the values and the behaviors and the outcomes that we desire and that we laud, you know, that, that we praise. And, and then we vilify those who have different values and so forth. That's that's the root of culture. And strong culture isn't about necessarily about excluding, but it is definitely about knowing what people like us value, uh, what people how how we behave when uh, no one is look, uh, watching. And I, I think far far too often um, we 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 tolerate those little in. Um, insincerities, those little disrespects. And I think we have to be, uh, it's not about being politically correct, but it is being really aware of just how valuable each person is within the organization. And as a manager, to really understand them as human beings. And almost no managers ever spend enough time on that. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. And also this, you can have your values excuse me, you can have your values on your PowerPoint slide or whatever it is, but those values have got to be lived. Lived, absolutely. And a, a couple of examples, I actually alluded to this earlier on, um, the statement that says the most important people in our business are the customers is just wrong, in my opinion. Yep. The most important people in your business are your people. Yep. And if there is a situation where your customers and your people are at odds, by default you are behind your people, in my opinion. And there was one situation, fairly well-known situation in our, in our business where uh, the, the, the technical team, or the technical support team didn't, didn't report to me at all. I, I don't know anything about 
the technology. But I was in the office one day and I heard, overheard a conversation going on with a our technical support guys with, with one of our customers. And it's quite clear there was a bit of a battle going on and it didn't sound very pleasant. And so I spoke to the guy afterwards. It was a young guy afterwards. I spoke to him afterwards. I said, explain to me what happened. And so he told me what, what was happening. I listened to you know the recording, the call and whatever. And I picked up the phone and called, called the customer back. And I said, first of all, explain to who I was. I said, this is not acceptable. If you treat our people, I, I completely understand you have a problem. I'm fine with that. We're going to do the best to fix it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that at all. But I expect you to treat our people with respect. If you don't treat our people with respect, you will no longer be a customer of ours, and I will give you your money back. And the guy who had been on the other end, had been berating our guy, was shocked because I was like, no, 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 hang on. And, and he backtracked and he said, you're absolutely right. I lost it. I shouldn't have done whatever. Great. Fantastic. We got to a good conclusion out of that. But the point was that show that very obvious management I'm not blowing my own trumpet, don't get me wrong, but it's just this an example of saying, listen, this is what's important to us. But th this is what, a, a concept that I talk about called employee safety. If you yes. don't feel management has your back, exactly. why should you give them your, you know, your life and soul? Why would you come to work for an organization that throws you under the bus in order to protect a, a revenue stream? I mean, that's obscene. I completely agree. I, we, we're doing way too much agreeing on this, Marcus. We ought to find something to argue about. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> let me. Um, I, I always found it almost obscene is too strong a word, but but wrong in the way that a lot of the companies, particularly a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, started this idea of you know what we can provide everything for you. We'll provide your bean bags and your 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 food and your your crash and your blah 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 blah. And the the way I always heard it and I still hear it explained, was if you make people really happy at work, then they're more productive, right? And I'm like, but that's just wrong. You should make people happy at work because they're people. And you should respect them, regardless of their role in your organization. Amen. Lena is as, is as important as you are. They are a human being. You should treat them that way. Now, the fact that... When people are happy, they perform better, better at work is a byproduct that's nice, but you shouldn't do it because that's why you're doing it. Uh, and to, to take your point about the cleaners, you know, if the last two years hasn't taught us something um, about uh, valuing people who we would ordinarily see as invisible mostly, then these are people who are at the front line of uh, defending public health. Yeah, in this, in this yeah, absolutely. Look, we're coming to time, but this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really, really curious about the experience that you had taking a business from nothing to 200 plus. What were the, the key milestones along the way that Gang of Four had to navigate that were the real learning moments for you? Oh, that's hard. Honestly, that's hard. <laughs> Let me just, if I tell you the story, maybe that will help pr prompt some things in my mind. It was a bedroom startup that was founded in 1997, I think. One person built some software. The other guy sold the software mm -hmm. and actually started to build a, a just kind of a partner program through consultants. And it basically grew from there. One of the most important things for us was we eventually, actually relatively early, managed to hire a 
great guy who ended up part of that four-person management team who was a very, very competent software person. And we had the architecture, we got the architecture put in place because the guy who originally built the software was good at writing code, but he wasn't an architect, if you like. And so it became very apparent to us relatively early on, it's about three years in, hang on, we need somebody that actually understands how to build this house. We've got a guy that's really good at plumbing and building walls and he builds brilliant walls and great plumbing but we haven't got anybody designing the house. And so that was really, really important from a software perspective. That, that's something that is so, I would imagine, is such an obvious thing for any technology business today that that's no great, that's no great huge thing. I would imagine most software businesses know that today, but I guess in 1997, it wasn't quite as apparent, maybe, or maybe it wasn't, maybe we were just stupid, who knows. But that was really important. And hiring him was was a, was a really critical because he basically got hold of the whole thing and, and said, hang on a minute, we need to do a bunch of changes and et cetera, et cetera. So that was a huge thing for us, I think. We also, there were a couple of things that we did that were huge mistakes. One of them was our Chinese operation. Right. We ended up by, we ended up with a Chinese business that ran completely out of control. <laughs> And unfortunately, because of uh, because of history, the person that operated it was was very much an English person and knew England and understood England, and that's how he operated. Brain the size of a planet, but very English, and didn't really understand culture and differences and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it, it it then moved to a different person who actually understood that a lot better. Turned out to be me, um, and that and I, I, I'm. The, the guy I'm talking about is is got a brain larger than mine, but I have more of a cultural understanding because I've lived in various different countries than he has. And it was just simply that understanding of the culture made the difference to managing that organization. It's not that I'm any genius or, or whatever. And actually, I ended up closing the business down. Right. <laughs> I just had the ability to understand from a, from a cultural perspective that this is just not going to work for all sorts of reasons. Even though I'm, as I say, I'm not anything like as smart as he is. Um, the guy who was originally running is just I have a different set of experiences. So I guess one of the things that comes out of that was understand, and people you hear this all the time, understand people's skill sets and put them in the right roles. One of the guys, the guys who was one of the four, was the CEO of the company, and bless him, very very good friend of mine. Again, brain the size of a planet, horrible dealing with people internally. Right. So we basically fired him from dealing internally. Yeah. And we said, you go out and do all the networking outside. You go and deal with all the big partners. You go and deal with Gartner. You go and deal with Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera. And he was brilliant at that. Ended up on stage at the, bar, at the Microsoft conference, shaking hands with Steve Ballmer, you know, blah, 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 blah. So again, it's figure out what people are good at, yeah. put them in the right places and let them get on with it and have the self-confidence and understanding that, listen, just because we fired you from one role doesn't mean you're not valuable to us. Get in this role where you're going to be great. And have the courage to do that stuff, I think, maybe is one of the big learnings. Mark, talk to me about Visible Pathway, because the whole premise behind our original conversation was, um, yeah, how do B2B customers buy? So let's have a quick dig into that before we wrap up. Right. So let me explain very briefly then. Visible Pathway is this the company that we are in the process of building at the moment, which if you think about the relationship between e-learning and education. So e-learning has digitized education. So think about if you wanted to learn guitar 15 years ago, you found a guitar teacher. Today, that guitar teacher has 
captured their lessons as videos and you can either subscribe or buy access to those videos and learn guitar that way. So that's this e-learning idea, digitizing of, of, of learning. Mm-hmm. Visible Pathway is aiming to do the same thing to consulting. So when an e-learning platform works with an educator to build e-learning courses, we work with consultants to build what we call digital projects, right? So there is a number of differences between e-learning and consulting in the real world, which translates over to what we're doing. So learning is typically about upskilling an individual in a particular set of skills, whereas consulting is about usually working via a team to improve a business operation in some sense. So our digital projects, which are our equivalent of online courses, our digital projects are obviously sourced from lots of different consulting companies, and they're focused on helping small to medium businesses improve some particular sphere operation in their business. Okay. And the way they work is different because they have to they have to cater to different businesses capabilities and constraints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you and I are beginners in guitar, we'll do exactly the same lessons. Whereas if two different companies do one of our projects, they will actually probably work through the project in a way that is very specific to their requirements rather than having exactly the same project. They'll they'll start and finish at the same point, but how they get there will be different. And we have some clever ways of of, of tailoring those, those projects. So I hope that kind of explains it. And the reason we were originally talking was this idea of one of the projects we have is a project called How B2B Customers Buy. Now, that's a project which is focused, surprisingly enough, there is a clue in the name, uh, on B2B businesses. And it came out of a presentation that was done to me when we still had our software company, where a gentleman came in and presented to us in front of a room. And I'm sure like many people listening, you've had many people come and try and sell you something in your life, in your business life. And this was the only time in my business career where I've sat back, slapped myself on the forehead and said, oh my God, that is brilliant. And basically it was a framework that this boutique consultancy company, sales consultancy company, had developed over a number of years, which allowed a B2B business to categorize its customers into three different categories as a function of how well the value of the product or service that, or service that was being sold was understood in the marketplace. And as a function of the answer to that simple question, you categorize into one of three buckets. Now, the cool thing about that was that those buckets have a set of behaviors, which both the people within those businesses will do, and also the business itself will do when engaging with a vendor to buy something. And each of those buckets are very different in the way they behave. And the insight then was that you as a vendor have to align yourself with each of those buckets as a function of which which one it is you're dealing with. So it implies you understand what those buckets are, you understand how to, to, to diagnose the customers, if you like, and then you have the ability in your business to operate in such a way that you aligned with those customers. And one of the things that it does is it removes to a huge amount the kind of fog that most B2B businesses are in, in that you have most B2B businesses that I've been involved in have a CRM system full of stuff that's in theory going to close in the next six months. 
And opportunity A closes in three weeks and opportunity B closes in a month. And opportunities C, D and E have been going on for 18 months and the sales guy still thinks they're going to close next month and they somehow never do. And you've no idea why. Right. That's kind of a microcosm of the stuff that goes on in B2B. And one of the things that this framework does is it sheds a huge amount of light on what's going on there and allows you to cut through it. If I'm getting it correct, what you're effectively doing is helping map out the buying journey from the customer's perspective and identifying the moments at which the vendor needs to be there to touch them. Yeah. Let me take those words slightly and modify. You built the framework is built around two things. It's built around what what are called buying styles. And these are the three buckets that I referred to. And the buying styles are the ways in which human... It's basically far more basic than than trying to sell anything. It's the ways in which human beings will talk to somebody when they understand something about what's being spoken about, if you like. So if you take into 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 a sales sense... If the, if the people understand the value of your product, product or service before you talk to them, and they understand the problem or opportunity that your product or service solves for them, they will act, before you talk to them, they will act in a, a particular way. Whereas if you speak to somebody else, a completely different organization, and they don't understand the problem or opportunity that your product solves, and they don't understand the value that it gives to them, you have to engage with them in a completely different way. Now, that stands to reason. Yeah. Right. But the answer to, if you like, that question is how well do they understand that value before you talk to them allows you to categorize them into one of those three buying styles. You can then say, let's look at the second thing, which is the buying process. Now, that buying process is a process that these guys, these consultants basically understood happens in any business when they are procuring when they when when they're when they get when they're say this dimly it's the process by which any product eventually gets bought in a business and it goes through a set of actions a set of things that has to happen in a business before anything gets bought now this is not a procurement process procurement process is right at the back end of it it's the stuff that has to happen in any business for a new idea to get all the way through to a transaction that's that's purchased. Right. So this is how they move from making space within their mind to solve a problem. Then they go into passive looking and they're starting to find, you know, do research, find out more. Then they start that going kind of idea. looking, that kind of thing. Right. That okay. kind of idea. And it, and it works through an acronym called IMPACT, which is idea, mentor, position, assess, case, and transact. So it's six phases. And it's very clear what goes on in each phase. And then the cool thing about this is that those buying styles that I talked about, those three buckets, map onto this impact process. So once you understand the buying style that your customer is in, you now know how to engage with the customer and you, you, un, you understand what they've already done and how you, what you need to take them through now to get to a transaction. And it is incredibly enlightening. One more time, sorry. Idea, mentor, position, assess. Assess, case, transact. And there's a there's a set of detail in each one about what's actually going on. And and none of the the thing that's amazing about this to me is it's like all the best ideas. We've never talked about in any detail, but anybody listening to this podcast who has any understanding of B2B sales, if I went through it for you, you'd all sit there and go, yep, 
yep, yep, yep, yep. There'd be no no's anywhere. You'd all go, yes, that makes complete sense. But it's like all the best ideas until somebody shows you and lays it out in a framework for you, you don't, you don't get it. But when they do, it seems so blindingly obvious. The amazing thing about it, though, is the insights it gives you in terms of how you need to be messaging across all of your different messaging platforms, how you need to be engaging with your customers. So that tells you about your engagement processes. I hesitate to call them sales processes, mm-hmm. but yeah, but engagement processes. Yeah. Third thing, it tells you about your HR because the kind of people that you need for each of these three different buying styles, they're a different set of skills, different set of capability. It tells you about your channel because the kind of channels that you need for each of these are very different. The kind of companies that you need are very different. It tells you about your it tells you about your corporate finance requirements because the implications on cost of sale are massive between these three different buying styles. And it, 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 in essence, when companies go through the process, they analyze themselves, they understand what these things are. They then start to change their business to suit whichever one or two of these buying styles they need to work with. And what you see is that sales effectiveness and efficiency goes through the roof. Because they now are in a position, whereas they can make those red, amber, green decisions really quickly. Yeah. Being able to get out early is just as important. It, it totally. wants to go forward with. I'm at amber. I need to know whether it's red or green. I want to know today. <laughs> I yeah. don't care. Just tell me which. And Very it's, interesting. It gives you those kind of things, which is, which is really, really cool. So that's one of the projects on our platform. There are loads of others. And they're all focused on small to medium business. What have been the big influences in your learning path in terms of either books or podcasts or audios or you know stuff that you'd recommend people educate themselves on i'd really probably point at really one i would point at stratechery by ben thompson which i'm not sure if you're aware of yeah s-t-r-a-t-e-c-h-e-r-y i think um i think he steve Sorry, Ben Thompson. About Ben Thompson, sorry. Yeah. He's a an extremely thoughtful and interesting technology and strategy an- analyst, hence Stratechery, right? Yeah. And I would highly re- I I pay for his I pay the hundred pounds a year or whatever it is for his um emails on a three times a week or whatever it is. And I think he is. He's extremely interesting as a, somebody who looks at what's going on in the technology strategy world and has some very, very interesting insights. That's really probably the one for me who's, who's the, most, the most interesting for me and I would recommend that people get on board with. There you very go, interesting. You can, you, can pay me, you can pay me the bill. You can pay me right. my commission check later. <laughs> excellent. Well, Ben can pay you a commission check. Exactly. <laughs> the flood. Uh, excellent. Okay. So, Mark, how can people get a hold of you? Probably the simplest way to get a hold of me is that by email. I, I'm not a social media person. I actually do have a Twitter handle, but I don't really use it. Um, you won't find me on Facebook or Instagram, anything like that. I don't understand why I'd ever want to use those platforms, so I don't. So, mark at visiblepathway.com is probably the simplest way to get hold of me if you want to have a chat or talk about anything. Excellent. Mark Cockgrove, thank you. It's a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag somebody. And take some notes, maybe even apply some of the things that you learned.
And if you feel the urge, then pop along to Apple Podcasts, scroll below the fold, and leave a rude review for me. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.